go to our study tonight, if you will. We are on principle number four and five. And we're looking at the seven principles of the Judeo-Christian ethic. You'll remember the first principle of the Judeo-Christian ethic is that we believe in the sanctity of life, right? That all men are created in the image of God. And so we believe that. Uh, then we believe, and we looked at it last week, the second and third, and we saw that these were also creation mandates, right? How many of you remember what the second one was? Anybody remember? Marriage, right. That God ordained marriage, one man, one woman, and that the family is the nucleus, the Judeo-Christian ethic is that which God ordained marriage, which is the nucleus, the family is the nucleus of any society, and it's established for order. And then the third one was labor, that the, the Protestant work ethic, the sense of having a work ethic that we work for our labors and we reap a reward. For however you sow, you shall reap. These are biblical principles. And how many of you remember one of the key, uh, really the, the uh, part of the greatest key to understanding what America was built on was really the Reformation principles of John Calvin and the diversity of government authority and so forth. Uh, that's where we get most of our Judeo-Christian ethic. We're now on to principle number four. And that is the right and necessity of a God-centered education. So let me read to you some of these scriptures that we base it on. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord made covenant with Israel and He told Israel, These commandments I have given you today, they're to be on your hearts. Teach them to your children. And how are we to teach them to our children? When you walk along the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, in all of our life's activities... We're to be teaching and instructing our children in godly principles. Now that's important as a basis for the education system. The founding fathers believed that it's essential to teach the citizens of a nation what righteousness is. Because if you teach the citizens of a nation how to live a righteous life, your nation will be blessed. It will have prosperity. It will have uh, peace and uh, happiness because people are walking, honoring each other, and uh, living up to the principles of righteousness in Scripture. If you take out the principles of morality from a nation, what are you going to end up with? Anarchy. Curse, right? It's going to fall apart. So uh, taken from Deuteronomy 6-7 that we're to instruct our children in the ways of the Lord. We're to be doing that day and night in all different situations. But what's happened in our society is we drop our kids off, right? We all got to make enough money to get the house and get the car and get the boat and get the tanks and get the whatever you buy. I don't know. But, uh, and, and, and we drop our kids off and we don't see them till 4 or 5 o'clock till then we take them to soccer and then we take them to baseball and then we take them to somewhere else. When do you get a chance to instruct your children? We're getting robbed because we think we're giving our kids everything, but we're actually forgetting to give them what they need. Right? We're expecting the schools. Hey, listen, even if you take your kid to Christian schools, it is your responsibility, parents, your responsibility to teach your children and instruct them in the ways to go. Amen? Now, we would ha thank God that if, if we could help through school and so forth, that would be a, even a greater blessing. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, 
But what? Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The training and admonition of the Lord. Again, we're responsible. And as a church right now, our kids, our teens are over here in the youth department. Our children are downstairs in the children's ministry. They're being trained in the, the Word of God to learn the way of the Lord. But that's only an hour on Sunday and an hour on Wednesdays. All right? And then what about all those who don't attend church? Is there a way to instruct even those that do not follow the Christian faith? Yeah, there sure is. There's still standards and principles that we should operate by. And that's what the founding fathers believed. These are essential for a healthy society. And last of all, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The knowledge that there is a God. And if there is a God, He's holy and true. And he is a God of righteousness, and he will bring judgment. And so the fear of the Lord causes me to have knowledge and to pursue him. Amen? So, uh, look at what George Washington said. He said, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail to the exclusion of religious principle. It's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Amen. Now that is, a, that is a great principle, and I like what he's saying. What he's saying here is, people would say, oh, well, that's your faith. But what George Washington appeals to is what? Reason? Logic? This is logical. That if you have an authority, you must serve that authority, God and the Word of God. That is just reasonable. And secondly, experience. You know, did we just arrive on this planet or something? Well, how many thousands of years of history do we have where we see nations rise and fall, right? The Roman Empire rose and fell. The Greek Empire rose and fell. And what are the key signs that caused each of these amazing civilizations to eventually fall? The decadence and the moral collapse inward that caused these great empires to fail. Sexual perversion came in, and, and they were more interested in the games and in the uh, Olympic activities and the sports and the gymnasiums. It's interesting. Do a history on Greek history and Roman culture, and the gymnasium was the town center. And what happened from there was a lot of corruption. But anyways, okay. Reason and experience forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail to the exclusion of religious principle. You must have a moral principle here. And that is God and the Bible. So we go on. Let's look at some more quotes. I want you to understand something be, before we uh, go any further, and that's this. From 1620, I'll back it up so you don't get bothered by that man's portrait. Uh, from 1620 to 1837, virtually all education in America was Christian. Bible reading, school prayer, and the Ten Commandments were in every school in America. Why? Again, because of like Washington's quote, they all understood as founding fathers, and they didn't have to necessarily be Christians. There were deists, there were Unitarians, there were Jews, there were other folks, and, and even non-believing folks who understood, though, that moral principle is essential, and that you can get that through the Bible, even though you yourself may have not uh, been educated in it or follow it, it is the principle that should govern the land. And so it was taught in school, Bible reading, and Ten Commandments. Virtually all the colleges established were established for the glory of God. Of the first 108 universities, 
founded in the United States of America, 106 of them were founded by pastors or churches. That only leaves two that weren't. All right? So they believed that education and the Bible went hand in hand. The fear of the Lord and education, learning to read. The, the reason founding fathers wanted everyone to read, guess why? Was so that they could read what? The Bible, the Word of God. And again, that's a Protestant ethic, the sense that the priesthood of all believers, you should be responsible and accountable to know the Word of God. So it is essential that we teach everyone how to read. Now, Harvard University in 1636 and its rules and precepts declared this. This is Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. All right? I think you'd be kicked out of Harvard if you would say that or repeat that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said this, A nation of well-informed men who have been taught to know and prize the rights which God has given them cannot be enslaved. It is in the region of ignorance that tyranny begins. So he believes that if you're ignorant, if you don't have education, if you're not learning, tyranny can come in and fool you or undermine you into that enslavement to sin. He says that a nation that is well informed or taught should know what God has given them. And so we want to follow the dictates of God. Even Benjamin Franklin, who we can't, I can't figure out if he was saved or not. He's, he's an unusual fellow. He really enjoyed George Whitfield. He'd go listen to him. He, he understood Scripture, but I don't think he followed it too closely. So, but he still understood its power. In fact, it was he, Benjamin Franklin, who's, who called Continental Congress into prayer and said, if we do anything, let's at least start with appealing to God. And so they always understood the need of looking to the higher authority. Now, uh, Gouverneur Morris, and it's not governor, it's Gouverneur, that's his name actually, he was the penman of the Constitution. Now, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, but as Continental Congress gathered together and they began putting together the Constitution of the United States, they knew that they needed someone who was eloquent to write it out and put all their thoughts together. And that was Gouverneur Morris. He spoke more on the floor than any other senator. And he was a godly man. He was called now the penman of the Constitution. He put together that, uh, the way the Declaration is read. And it's, it's beautiful the way he penned it. He said this as far as Christian education. Bluntly, we should be teaching Christianity in our schools. Now, we're not trying to make people convert. We, the United States was based on the, on the effort that each state could have its own laws and, and each religious group was free. The Quakers could live in this place and, and uh, those who were of the Episcopalian uh, could live in this place and Baptists and Rhode Island was much more liberal and you could do that. No one was trying to shove religion down anybody's throat. They had come away from that where the king had mandated religion. What they were doing was giving it freely and you could choose or not to choose, but they did know there needs to be a moral standard and Christianity proves itself out to be the highest of all moral standards and effectiveness in any country. 
And I think America has proven that out over these number of years. And so Morris said we should be teaching Christianity in the schools. Now, let's go on. Let's listen to what Benjamin Rush says. Benjamin Rush said this, if we were to remove the Bible from public schools, we would be wasting so much time punishing crimes and taking so little pain to prevent them. Hold on to that thought, because that is a prophetic word of what will take place in America. Benjamin Rush. The great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extirpating Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible at schools. You see, the key here is why take it out of public schools? Because you're taking it out of the hands of children. Children are the ones who are so easily shaped. If you're not giving them morality, righteousness, and the Word of God, what are they going to go towards? Their flesh, completely. What feels good, does it. Do whatever you want. Don't listen to teacher, don't listen to this, right? I mean, it's, and, and this man is prophetic. Benjamin Rush is absolutely prophetic over what's going to happen in America, and he calls it forth. He says, if we remove the Bible from public schools, we'd be wasting so much time punishing crimes and taking so little pains to prevent them. In other words, you prevent crime in your society by teaching them righteousness. If you don't teach them, you'll be chasing them uh, all around as they're doing their crimes. I can't help it. There's our little guys right now. Look, I'm walking through the hallway. Heading on out. So cute. All right. Now, that's essential for us to see. Bible reading in the schools. I want you to remember that now, okay? Uh, um, Morris and Rush, by the way, were abolitionists, strong proponents of against slavery. Uh, I want you to remember that though you hear it in, in uh, secular society, uh, uh, America had a vision and a dream that all people were created equal. And it did not... Uh, uh, follow what it had declared, did it? Uh, especially for slaves being brought over. But I want you to know that there were a number of clergymen and a number of senators, a number of people who continually fought against slavery and at the signing, I shared with you last week, I'll share it with you again, that uh, Gouverneur Morris and Rush were very strong opponents of slavery and said we should not have any of slavery. I, I'd like you to read some of Morris's quotes about slavery. He said he would give up his freedom to stop this, this sin upon the land. So it was a fight from the beginning. Uh, and unfortunately, it took so long for this nation to get there, but it cost us a great price, didn't it? And uh, so we have to keep understanding that God wants his people, if they're going to claim to follow him, he wants hypocrisy wiped out. And uh, he wants us to follow him as we say we will. So what happened if the founding fathers, founding fathers understood that a nation who has righteousness will have peace, will have prosperity, will have blessing, uh, and the best uh, form of understanding our morals and ethics and righteousness is the Judeo-Christian ethic. It gives liberty to all and freedom, but it gives, uh, again, blessing as 
blessed is the nation whose God is Jehovah, who is the Lord. So what happened? They believed in public education so that when you're young, you're teaching your children biblical principles so you'll have a better society and training them to read so that they themselves as well can read and understand scripture so that they'd have a better life. That's what our education was based on. What happened? Let me share with you some of the things that happened. What happened to our education? It started in 1837. A man named Horace Mann. He's called the father of modern public education. He was the president of Massachusetts legislature and the chairman of the new State Board of Education for America's first public school system. What Horace Mann uh, called for is the uh, public school where the government was now going to take control from the churches. Most public schools were attached to churches uh, in every town. The church was the one that educated. Now he is calling for a public school run by the government. And Horace Mann became the first administrator of public school. He was a Unitarian. He did not believe in the Trinity. He didn't believe in the resurrection. And uh, he was not a Christian. He said it was deplorable to him that education of the children of America is in the hands of the Christian church. Quite the opposite of what the founding fathers were saying, right? And uh, so he had a real problem with the church educating children. And so it was his plan and his purpose to take education out of the hands of churches and Christians and bring it into the governmental authority. And so he did that. Now, at the same time, they were still using the McGuffey Reader and using a number of texts that had the Bible in it. There was still Bible reading in school, but he brought it out from under the power of the church. Secondly, we have John Dewey. He was a professor at Columbia University in New York, father of progressive education. Dewey was an atheist. He was the first president of the American Humanist Association and signer of the Humanist Manifesto. I don't know if you've ever read the Humanist Manifesto. You need to read it. It's an atheist uh, declaration. He felt that Christianity was the principal problem that needed to be solved by our public education. And this is progressive education. You can see that these are the roots of public education. What I want to show you with that is this, that the founding fathers understood that the Bible and Scripture is the foundation of what education should be for our children for a better society and righteousness. Public education was deliberately targeted against that Christian influence to take it away from these foundational principles in an atheistic manner to take out and sanitize it from Christian faith and belief. And it began all the way back in 1837 and then of course with John Dewey. Now, after that, how many of you remember in 1925 this situation, the Scopes trial? Has anybody ever watched Inherit the Wind? You ever see that movie? They made a remake of it. You've not seen this movie? Wow. Where were you like 30 years ago on a Saturday afternoon and just watching a black and white movie? I mean, all right, so the Scopes trial, if you're unfamiliar with it, the newly founded ACLU paid a teacher in Tennessee to teach evolution. 
They baited him. They did that on purpose. They asked him to teach evolution so that it would be brought before the Supreme Court, so that they would be brought before the court, so that they could have a lawsuit because you, it was against the law to teach evolution in the state of Tennessee. Now, if you've watched the movie Inherit the Wind, it is a complete sham and mockery of the original trial. And it makes the Christians, of course, as most films do and most TV shows, it makes the Christians look like a bunch of buffoons. Makes them look like idiots. And so here they are holding on to their Christianity as best they can while modern science is going to take us into the new future that is going to be better than ever. And of course you know how much progress we've made in mankind. Do you know in the 20th century there's been more death and murder than any other century? It's the bloodiest time in the history of the world. And that does us well, right? Because of what's happened in the failure uh, of them taking Christianity out of our uh, government. Scope's trial comes on. Uh, Horace Greeley and all, Simon Greeley, all, I forget these guys' names. But anyways, guess who won? You wouldn't know it, but guess who won the, the, the case? The Christians. Yeah, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't even know it if you watched the movie. But they did. But it's just 40 years later. Guess what happens to the law of the land? It's illegal now to teach creationism and evolution is taught in all science classes. You cannot teach creationism in the public schools. That began to change things around. And then, of course, how many of you remember this fine woman, Madeline Marie O'Hara? In 1963... An avowed atheist, uh, just an unabashed atheist, a real, well, by her own admission, all right, I won't go for character, um, but read a little bit about her and she'll tell you her activities and what she liked to do, okay? It was anything but righteous. And she came against prayer in schools and fought against it to where in 1963 she was successful at removing prayer and Bible reading from public schools. Okay? Now, listen to this. There was only one dissenter, one dissenting vote from the Supreme Court who said, no, you can't do this. You can't take prayer and the Bible out of school. That was Justice Potter Stewart. He said this, it led not to true neutrality with respect to religion, but to the establishment of a religion of secularism. He's right. You see, this is a, a tactic of atheism where they say, you know what, it's separation of church and state, separation of church and state. You can't have the two. And so I'm offended by your Christianity. But humanism and atheism has been acknowledged by the Supreme Court as a religion. So therefore, they're excluding all religions except one religion in public school, and that is secular humanism or atheism. And so they're actually giving preference to a religion. As opposed, if you want all plurality and you want the freedom and the liberty for all to choose, then we should be allowed to teach creationism or evolution or both. Should be allowed to have a time of prayer if a Buddhist wants to pray, if a Muslim wants to pray, if a Christian wants to pray, and if an atheist doesn't, he doesn't have to. But what they've done is they've assigned all rights to one religious group. Atheism, which according to, uh, again, the uh, Supreme Court has been declared 
a religion. True neutrality would not favor one religion over another, but the court's ruling favoring atheism over all the religions of the world that believe in God. So the court did not act neutrality, but actually favored one religion from another. Wall Street Journal said this in 1963, the one belief atheism to which the state's power will extend its protection. So don't be fooled when people argue against you saying, hey, I don't want your religion in my school, I don't want your religion. Well then, you can't exist as a school. There's an ideology that's being taught somewhere. Evolution is an ideology, right? Humanism is an ideology. So it's not true neutrality. Let's go on. The Humanist magazine said this. Let me read it to you. This is the religion that's replaced Christianity in the public schools. Humanist Magazine, 1983. I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizer of a new faith, a religion of humanity, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the educational level. Preschool, daycare, or large state university, the classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism. You see, this has been an argument of religions under the guise of non-religion, separation of church and state. But our state has actually formally backed a religion called humanism. It's got a manifesto or a creed or an ordinance. It's got followers and believers. But what they claim is their, their teaching ground is the public school. You can see how back from all the way back from when the public school originated, it was pulling it out of Christian education. Hey, look, at, we both have the same idea. If you teach our children when they're young, they will not go astray. And so humanism wants them when they're young as well. And to teach them their principles. What are the principles of humanism? What are the tenets of humanism that are being taught in public school for our children? Number one, evolution. And what is the first premise of evolution? There is no creator. We're all animals. All right? Self-authority. You have the authority to choose and do what you want. Relativism. Relativism says there's no transcendent truth. Your truth, my truth, it's whatever matters at whatever time. Situational ethics, same concept. Sexual perversion, you know, we've got sex education in second and third grade and helping children trying to decide their sexual orientation at that age. They're not even sexually aware or cognitive. Socialism and anti-Christian ethic. This is what's being taught in public schools more than ever. And so this is really the struggle of America. And what's happened generation after generation? How are we doing, folks? How are we doing? When you think about it, all right? And we're in a fight right now for an, the next level of humanism called the core curriculum. I don't know if you're following the core curriculum debate right now in public education and what's going on in the states. This is a, a fascinating thing. It was not developed by a teachers union. It was not developed by uh, the National Education Task Force. It was developed by a private firm outside of the government and outside of anyone, uh, 
any public education. The teachers are up in arm about this as well. And they're bringing in the core curriculum. And one of the biggest proponents for it, after using it, backed away and said, this is one of the worst things that I've ever seen. And one of the key components is it absolutely alienates parents out of the picture from their children's education. And again, that's the, that's the principle, isn't it? That's the principle, the idea. And to, again, form our children's mind into a one-world government mind. Listen to this. United States spends more money on public education than any other nation in the world, yet our graduating students rank lowest in the industrialized world. But you know what? That's all right because we have the highest self-esteem. We all feel really good about each other. What happened to the lottery money? What happened to all the money we we're going to put into education? What happened to all this that's going to transform? We keep pouring more money and more money into education. And where are we getting with education? It's, it's hideous what's taking place. Today, uh, if you look, John Quincy Adams said that the, in the early 1800s, only four people out of a thousand were illiterate. That's four-tenths of one percent. Today, we have 27 million illiterates. In addition, there are an estimated 30 million more functional illiterates in this country. The founders understood, and how many of you remember this quote? I'll go back now to the quote of Benjamin Rush. The great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effective means of extirpating Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible in school. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? All right. That is the point. I, you know, it's an interesting... Uh, let me just share with you a little bit about Madeline Marie O'Hara. Um, she, she was a, an anarchist. I mean, she just was a staunch atheist. And uh, she loved to buck everything. And she loved to hire uh, for her uh, work. She loved to hire uh, folks that were uh, convicted of murder. And she'd, would they get out, serve their time, get out of jail, she'd hire them. Uh, she loved to work in that kind of a strange situation. Uh, it ended up killing her, her son, and her, and her granddaughter. I mean, the, one of those ex-cons ended up murdering her. That's a sad story. But one of the most interesting stories is that her other son is a born-again Christian who had found Jesus Christ and accepted the Lord. See, so... That says something, that even the failure of our public school system, the failure of our nation to continue the Judeo-Christian ethic cannot stop the move of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. Amen? Even if you grow up in her house, Jesus can come get you. That's amazing. Thank God for that. Now, let's look at the, the fifth principle we want to look at, and that is the, the concept of the Abrahamic covenant. This goes well with the concept of the principle of public education uh, according to the Bible because the concept of Abrahamic covenant is this. Most of the founders believed that the American experiment was one of the nations that was now going to live out the law of Scripture in relationship to God. And by doing this, they were going to obey God's standard and God's word. Genesis 12, 1 through 4 tells us the blessing of Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, 
and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They took that and said, if we, like Abraham, will honor God in all that we do and pledge this nation to God and the continuance of the gospel to all nations, we will be a blessed nation. And let me ask you this question uh, before uh, the mid-1900s. Was America a great, was America's name great among all the nations? He said, I'll bless you. Uh, I'll curse those who curse you. God sustained the United States. He did that, didn't he? All the families of the planet have been blessed by the United States, not only for their uh, prosperity uh, and for where they needed military might, but more importantly, there have been more gospel missionaries sent through all the world through the United States than any other nation. And so we're blessed because the Abrahamic covenant is built on that. Galatians 3, 7 says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And so built on the Christian ethic that we honor Israel, we honor God, we will be a blessed nation. Now, that's changing. Now, the leadership of our government is not honoring Israel and is coming to a place where they're dishonoring it, and it's going to be interesting what takes place with the Americans' relationship with Israel. Uh, but also, the last one, blessed is the nation whose God is Jehovah. All right? That's specific to God. And uh, so that's why we're a blessed people. The principle is that when a nation obeys God, follows his ethics, his moral truths found in Scripture, that nation will be blessed and God will watch over them. Now here's the other flip coin to this, isn't there? If you commit yourself in covenant to God and commit yourself as a nation to God to follow his principles, he will bless you. If you disobey the Lord that you've committed yourself to, what will you heap upon yourself? Curses or the judgment of God. And we've witnessed that and we've seen it. Even Abraham Lincoln understood when he quotes about the Civil War, knew that it was because it was God's judgment for how we have treated those citizens of our nation who were not even citizens yet. They couldn't be. They weren't allowed. Abraham Lincoln says this, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Does it sound like Abraham's quoting a scripture? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And, and Abraham Lincoln understood that. And so he knew that we would be blessed if we would honor God. Righteousness exalts a nation whose... Uh, blessed is the nation whose... Uh, Sorry, whose God is the Lord. But righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. We have had judgments from God as a nation because of our national sin. Don't think that God will not judge this nation again. And I remember Dr. Dobson saying this, and, and it always stuck with me. Because many of us are praying to, that God would not judge this nation. Dr. Dobson said, I am praying that God will bring judgment to this nation so that we will turn back to Him. He said, the greatest thing I fear is that God would not judge us, but turn us over to a reprobate mind. 
So, unless this nation has revival and turns back to the Lord in repentance to the God that we've covenanted with, unless we go and turn to revival and repentance to restore this nation, then the judgment of God will come. Because of the blood we've spilt, because of the, the, the cheating and the lying economically of what we've done, and the mass sin that we've committed with other nations around the world, and what we've done in conspiracy with other nations has been hideous as a nation. These things will all be judged. But if God judges us, that means He's disciplining us, and that means there's hope for us. The worst case scenario is that we don't repent, God doesn't judge, but He takes His hands from us. God forbid. God help us. God please bless America. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, what we do at this point is we enjoy breaking up into groups now.